doctrine, as Christians, we believe it's important that we pass on these stories. Um, but often we use words like joy and hope and light without really, uh, it, they come off the tongue very quickly as Christians and without actually dwelling on them for a little while. And this is why these videos are so great. And uh, I'm going to be uh, chatting a little bit more about joy in a second. I was, uh, I, we've been giving out the, uh, the children's Bibles to families as a gift from us at this Christmas time to our families. And it got me thinking about the first children's Bible I had. Uh, it was actually given to me when I was, uh, when I was christened. Um, so, you know, I was just a few, uh, a couple of months old, I guess. And this children's Bible, I still have it in my study. And, and I remember as a child, even before my mom and dad became Christians, looking through this book and really enjoying the imagery in it. Especially, I remember uh, vividly the, uh, the David and Goliath um, picture and, uh, and the Noah. And, and, and even at that time, I remember looking through, thinking, this is an intriguing story. I remember being intrigued just because of the, the imagery that was attached to it. But one of the things that I do find interesting in this time of year is as a society and as a culture, and even as Christians, what we tend to do is we focus on the parts of the Bible that, that bring us good feelings, that, uh, that we want to uh, start feeling more joy and hope and peace from. But underlying the narrative of Scripture, there's certain verses, there's certain parts of stories that are far from it. And, and I want to show you one verse from the Christmas story that is a good example of this. This is not something you will see on the front of Christmas cards, and yet it is central to the story of Christmas, and it's this verse. When Herod, this is from Matthew 2, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, or wise men, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time they had learned from the Magi. That is not a verse you see often on the front of Christmas cards, is it? If it is, it might take you back a little bit because it's not a verse that we really want to focus on or pay attention to at Christmas because it seems to be so opposite to what Christmas is all about. And, and that's absolutely true. When we think about the nativity scene and we think about the different characters that are involved in the nativity scene, in fact, uh, I was at uh, Sean and Carolyn's house yesterday and I looked at their beautiful nativity scene and I said this, where's Herod? You don't see Herod in very many nativity scenes. And yet he's very central to the story of, of Christmas. In fact, I want to say this, I want to suggest to you as we, as we look at this character Herod, is that actually Herod, uh, we, we, have a, we have a lot in common with, with Herod. This, is, uh, this was an image that I found that was actually very similar to the type of images that were in my children's Bible. But we have a lot in common with Herod. I want to suggest that maybe we have a little bit of Herod in all of us. Herod was a very interesting character. There's, he was a particularly nasty tyrant. He, uh, he, he ruled over, he wasn't Jewish, uh, but he ruled over the area of Judea, which where the Christmas story takes place. And he ruled there from 37 BC through to just when we're told Jesus was born. He was an incredibly astute and smart. He was the epitome of an evil genius. He was a very astute politician, so much so that he convinced the Romans at that time to give him great swathes of, uh, of the area that really weren't under his jurisdiction. He actually managed to wrangle them out of the hands and the Romans to agree because he was, he was incredibly bright. If there was three words that really summed up Herod, I would say they were paranoia, 
ambition and control. That's what his life really was characterized by. He was the second uh, richest independent businessman in the area at that time, including in Rome. This guy knew how to do business. He knew how to take control. He was incredibly ambitious, and he was very, very smart. He was also quite obsessed by buildings. This is a, a graphical depiction of his palace. Um, and he was also well known for building uh, other incredible monuments, really to himself. And he was also the one who refurbished the temple at the time. Uh, the, the temple, the central uh, focus to the Jewish religion. Even though he wasn't a Jew, he refurbished the temple. He was all about leaving a legacy for himself. He wanted his story to be louder, brighter, bigger, his legacy more well-known than anybody else in the region at that time. And he was willing to do whatever it took in order to get there. He was a hated figure, a hated figure at that time. To give an example of the type of uh, thinking that he had, he really was a despot. He put a Roman eagle that symbolized all of Rome right on the gate of the Jewish temple, infuriating the Jews at the time, but he wasn't bothered because he knew that he could send in the troops and through much bloodshed, he could bring the whole area back under control. The Jews and the nation hated this man. He was a murderer. He killed uh, uh, three of his own sons because he felt that they were going to usurp him in some way. He killed a number of his wives. He killed a couple of his brother-in-laws who were the high priests at the time. He had no qualms in doing whatever it took in order for his own ambition, his own story, his own legacy to be paramount. Control was everything. He knew that he was hated. He knew that the land did not like him. Um, so much so that he was dying a pretty horrible death. And he was incredibly uh, 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 pain-ridden through, the historians tell us, through kidney disease. And so near the end of his life, he uh, decided and he knew that the moment that he died, there would be parties in Jerusalem. He knew that because he knew he was hated. He didn't care. And so this guy, who is the center in many ways, is really mentioned a lot more than most other characters in the Christmas story. He knew that there was going to be parties in Jerusalem when he died. So here's what he did. And, and part of me admires this, while at the same time is horrified by it. He took over a hundred of key Jewish and, uh, uh, leaders and threw them into prison with the strict instructions that within an hour of his death, these hundred or so leaders were to be executed, thereby ensuring mourning in the land. What he didn't count on was this, that the moment within an hour of him dying, rather than them being executed, they were released. And therefore the party went from here to here because now not only were they celebrating the fact that Herod was dead, they were celebrating the release of these hundred leaders. See, he was so controlling and so ambitious that even in his death, he wanted to make sure that his legacy was intact. He died in 4 BC. Just think about that for a second. History tells us that Herod died 4 BC. That's one of the things that people who are skeptical about the existence of Jesus, and we just come out of a series, FAQ series, where we actually talk about whether or not Jesus actually existed. But people use this argument because they know through uh, non-Christian history books, we're told that he died 4 BC. The challenge is this, is that then you go, well, hang on a second, Jesus was born at zero. So therefore Jesus didn't exist. 
Well, actually, what we do know now from studying uh, everything from the stars to history books is that Jesus wasn't actually born at the year zero. He was born 6 BC. Now, you might go, well, that's awfully convenient. You know, let's just throw a different date in to make sure that it lines up with Herod's life. Whereas we actually see through history books that align with the scriptures. The scriptures don't actually give us a date. In fact, we don't really know that he was born in December. Probably because the wise men were too busy on Big White and didn't have the time to get to to stable. I don't know. But uh, there, there is question over when specifically Jesus was born because it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But history and the universe shows us he was actually born 6 BC. Can you just pass me the water, please, love? So Herod, thank you. Herod was quite the character. And he died of kidney disease, and it was a painful, painful death. And we pick up his story. I want to show you some of the scripture. Now, remember I said that Herod was, there's a part of Herod in his all. Emperor Augustus said it was better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. Because he looked after his pets really well and tended to kill his children. He tried to control everything because he wanted to have a legacy. He wanted to have a legacy. What's really interesting about Herod is this, is that we know geographically that Herod lived around about nine kilometers away from where Jesus was born. Nine kilometers We also know, history tells us, that the Romans had chariots that often were made out of leather. They were very, very light because they they wanted to move very quickly. And they could go more than 50 kilometers an hour. So that means this, is that Herod was 10 minutes away from Jesus. 10 minutes away. That's all he was. 10 minutes away from having his legacy and his story, the trajectory of his life being radically different. And as we're going to read in a second, you're going to see the character of Herod come out of the story. And he was 10 minutes away. Just a short ride of actually having his legacy intact. Not for the buildings that now are rubble. And there's an interesting symbolism in what Herod was chasing after. The more you read Herod, the more you're actually, it's like reading our own culture and our own history. And not just our history, but history that we stand upon for, since Herod until now. That these constant examples of people, men and women, whether it be world leaders or whether it be just individuals living in cities, people like you and me, who are marked by this ambition and desire to control. And then we have this Christmas story, this story of joy, where Herod was 10 minutes away actually from leaving a legacy that would have meant more than just rubble. And he wants to be called Herod the Great. He wants to be called Herod the Builder, whereas many people called him Herod the Murderer. What a legacy that he was trying to control. Matthew chapter 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who had been born king of the Jews? Let's just stop there. Imagine Herod, knowing now just a little bit of his character, when he heard this king of the Jews statement, history tells us he actually killed one of his children because they were trying to set themselves up as king of the Jews. He hears this statement and imagine what boils up within him. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
You see, these magi, these wise men, and we think there's maybe three, but only because there's three gifts. There's probably far more. There could have been a whole crowd of them traveling together, searching for this one called Jesus, the King of the Jews, that we might go worship him. This word worship is really important. Worship basically means this, what it is that you make ultimate in your life. Not what you say is ultimate, but what actually is ultimate in your life, what you bow your knee to. And again, in the FAQ series, we talked about how everybody has a belief system that that they worship, that they submit to, that they seek after, that they bow the knee to, that they make ultimate. And so these magi, these wise men were saying, we want to worship him. We want to make him ultimate. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And it's interesting because you actually study this verse, all of Jerusalem with him, that there is some suggestion that the reason Jerusalem was disturbed is because when King Herod was disturbed, people died. So the city is on tender hooks. Ten minutes away, what is King Herod going to do? When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they, quite rightly, looking at Old Testament prophecy, were able to say this. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem. So they're quoting one of the prophets from the Old Testament. In the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Imagine you being the one to tell Herod this. No, you go do it. I'm not going to do it. Are you mad? You want me to go in and tell Herod that there's going to be somebody born in Bethlehem who uh, will shepherd my people Israel, who's a king. No, I'm not saying that. You're going to say because people die. So whoever it was that pulled the short straw tells this to Herod, somebody who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. See, this is a smart guy. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. No chance. There is no way that this man whose whole life is really symbolized by ambition, control and protection and murder in order for him to stay as king. There is no way that this is going to happen. There is no way that he is going to bow the knee to anyone other than himself. I said earlier that in many ways we can see our culture in this. Because this idea of what you make ultimate, what you worship, the Bible talks also in, in, in they use the phrase idolatry. And it literally means, and, and the, the prophet Ezekiel uh, talks about idolatry, and actually if you think about it in psychological terms, it, it makes sense in philosophical terms. Idolatry ultimately is for whatever it is, whatever you're making the most important in your life, and I've preached this before and I have it quoted to me from some of you, so I'm glad that some stuff sticks, it's awesome, um, is that when you kind of close your fist around something and you bring it into your heart, they make idols of the heart, the scripture says. So what you worship, suddenly you close your fist around and it becomes part of who you are. It becomes, in other words, a non-negotiable. I must have this. 
My life will not be complete unless I have this. I will not be happy unless I have this. I will not have joy unless I have this. My whole significant being is tied up with this. This can easily be identified. What is it that your mind just floats to when you're not thinking about much else? What is it that causes you the most anxiety? What is it that causes you to stay awake at night? What is it that causes you to be driven? What are you driving towards? That is a sign of what maybe you are making ultimate. See, for Herod, it was control and ambition and being ruler. For us, in our culture, you see, Luther talks in terms of idols starting off as good. See, there's nothing wrong with desiring things. There's nothing wrong with the good things our society provides. What makes them wrong is when we make them ultimate. So there's nothing wrong with children. Children are a gift of God. We, we want to spend time with our kids. This is why we're giving time and the service to them. It's important that they, 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 we want them to thrive. We've been given responsibility for them. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. That's just part of who we are as humans. But the second that that child becomes ultimate to you, that they become non-negotiable, that them and their success and their achievements and their happiness and their joy and their stability, if that is your everything, you see, we can go, that's a good thing because we're looking after our kids. Whereas the scripture might suggest if that becomes your ultimate thing, then that too is idolatry. That seems pretty harsh. But actually, whatever you place your faith in, you are looking in some way, now listen to this, whatever you are placing your faith in, whatever you are making ultimate, in some way you are hoping will save you. That's ultimately what you are hoping for. You're hoping for something to come back to you from that which you are holding ultimate. That's just called human nature. We're hoping in some way that our kids can give back to us something that maybe we're lacking. And you can replace kids with relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, money, business, schooling, degree, achievement, whatever it might be. None of these things are bad. The second you close your hand around them and say, I have to have this. That's when it becomes an idol, and that's when it starts to control you. So there's nothing wrong with money until money starts to control you, until you start worshipping money. So then money actually becomes something that is unhealthy. And so for Herod, for him to say, I might go and worship him, because what he actually worshipped was ultimate to him, and he was not going to let go. So here's what we do as Christians. So Christians, just listen up, and I want you to consider this. What is it you have your hand firmly closed around? And is his name Jesus like the Magi? Is your knee bowed to the one that we proclaim is ultimate actually in our lives? Or is it more reality that we have an open hand upon the one that we say is ultimate? And he is negotiable. That he can easily get dropped in order for this. That we start saying things like this. God, you can have everything, but don't touch this. You can't have this. I'm not going to bow to anything other than this. And so we we drop. We have negotiable God, non-negotiable fill in the blank. And then we pick up God every now and again when we really want something, but ultimately we have him as negotiable because this has become ultimate. And that's just something that we all need to consider. That's not something that I want you to feel condemned about. That's called just reflecting on what it is that we're focusing our life on. You see, for Herod, it was all about making himself and his possessions and his story ultimate. And things haven't really changed too much. He worshipped himself and his 
achievements. And you can see that in our culture. We celebrate self. You often hear the term, well, we need to love ourselves more. We really probably don't. We, I think we do a really great job of loving ourselves already. We have whole websites devoted to ourselves. <laughs> you see, this idea of making your story and possessions ultimate ultimately will lead to something that will be the downfall. He was 10 minutes away. 10 minutes away. It's fair to say that this is true of our culture. That he drifted. You see, look, if we move the story on. After they heard the king, they went on their way. This is the Magi. And the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Because that, remember, they were wanting to worship. They wanted to make ultimate the one called Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so their desire, their, their hope, their ambition was tied up with this one called the king of the Jews. So they are naturally overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Joseph gets up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled when the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Let's just pause there for a second. One of the ways that we can identify maybe what it is that we're worshipping is when that thing gets taken away or gets restricted or that is challenged. These kind of emotions come up. Anxiety, fury, that we will do anything. We will fight for that which we make ultimate. What is it that we make ultimate? And so he gave orders to kill all the boys, some historians say, including his own son. Some historians would say. We don't know that for sure. But all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, to put that into context, you're talking about between 20 and 30 young boys because of the size of the area at the time, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. That ended up being his legacy. Those. (laughs) Those who were seeking his life are now dead. He's not even given a name anymore. That's his legacy. That's where we're left when it comes to Herod. That's where Herod's imprint on history is left. And so this is what causes me to ponder. You see, he'd spent his whole life in control to the point where he was willing to sacrifice all these young boys in order to keep control because of what he was holding as ultimate, including, some historians would say, his own child. How did you get there? That's a big jump. There's one thing for feeling driven and ambitious and, and wanting, to, uh, wanting to do well in life. It's a whole other thing that you are willing to murder in order to bring about that which you desire most. That's a big jump. How do you get there? 
How do you find yourself there? You see, I say that Herod, in some way, is a little bit like us. Because there's another story in the New Testament that I've been studying recently that I'm seeing in a whole fresh light. And it's a beautiful story. And it's the story in Luke of the prodigal son. And you know the story. And I'll very briefly have a son who asks his dad for his inheritance, which is paramount to saying, Dad, I want you dead. Because that is just something you just do not do. And then he goes and he ends up and he parties at a nearby city. And, and then he ends up in the, in the pig pen. I mean, he's, he's as far away from where he was as he could possibly be. And then the Bible says he comes to his senses and he journeys back to his father, where his father is waiting to, to hug him and, and to say welcome and to love him, even though the son is repentant and just says, look, make me one of your servants. I don't deserve anything else. But his father wraps his arm around him and loves him, even though he has drifted so far. How did he get to the pig pen? How did he end up there? One step. How did Herod end up doing that? One step. It's just one step away from what we have been created to be. It's one step. The trajectory often can be the slightest increments towards drift away that you're suddenly so far away from where God has created you to be. Because we've already heard today that we believe that God has created us to be good, to, to enjoy life, to, to celebrate, to enjoy good things. And yet somehow life seems to cave in. We're surrounded by voices that slowly and surely kind of seduce us away from what is best. And we have these broken lives. And some feel like they're in the pig pen. How did they get there? It's just one step at a time. Just one step at a time. You see, when Jesus at Christmas is presented, there's pushback, isn't there? You must know it's the pushback. Can't say Christmas. It's holidays. Happy holidays. You know, if you say Merry Christmas, in fact, I'm actually seeing a little bit of a shift. I don't know if you have in culture. Britain is a little ahead of us because now the pushback has come back the other way. No, it is Christmas. It's Christmas everywhere. But here we're still in that. Oh, no, we need to be sensitive. It's happy holidays. Yeah, but where does the holiday come from? Christ, Christmas. But there's pushback. As soon as Jesus comes into the scene, there's pushback. As soon as Jesus came into the scene from Herod, there's pushback. There's this, I don't, I don't want him in my life because by bowing my knee towards the one called Jesus, who's the king of the Jews, means that I have to relinquish some of my control, that I need to hold my life with an open hand, that it is his, that it's not mine. And so we push back. But by pushing back, we're actually making a decision just to drift further and further away from what is the ideal that God has created us to have and to be. And I've quoted this verse a lot in the last few weeks. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So Herod had no problem believing. See, he believed that Jesus, that, that you know what, even, he was just going to say, I'm not taking the risk. But I, I believe it's happening. Otherwise, he wouldn't have followed through with such awful decisions. We have no problem in believing that Jesus existed. What we do have problem is this part of the verse, that by believing you may have life in his name, that this submission, this worship, this, this um, culmination of what God has created us to be is ours for the taking, not the pig pen. 
And as I think about the tension, the pushback, that this place that maybe you're finding yourself in, that maybe that you've had an experience of church in your background, and it's created this pushback. Maybe you've been introduced to Jesus at some point in your, in your experience, and you push back. And, but, but here's what I love about Christianity, and here's what I love about God. That Herod was just ten minutes away, and he heard. He maybe even saw the star. I don't know. Here's what I love about God is he never leaves us in the pig pen. He just seems to, it feels like he's just so close, just 10 minutes away if you like. He constantly reminds us that actually we don't need to be where we're at, that there's a better way. But we push back. Until we get to the place where we're willing to come back. See, in the prodigal son it says he came to his senses. Herod never came to his senses. The prodigal son, we're told, came to his senses and started the journey back. What does that look like? What what would it have looked like for Herod to have come back? Ten-minute chariot ride. For the prodigal son, what did it look like? What did he follow through with? What did he actually do? One step. Just takes one small step. There's a very famous painting by Rembrandt. I don't know if you can see it clearly up there. And if you know the story of Rembrandt, I've been reading about Rembrandt, one seen as one of the greatest classical painters uh, ever. The story of Rembrandt is, is a really sad, heartbreaking story. And he painted this painting near the end of his life. And he, there were other paintings. He churned out paintings at such a rate. It was unbelievable. But if you actually read the story of Rembrandt, you'll actually see the prodigal son. Here's a man who had a constant sense of the presence of God in his life, but he partied hard. He spent hard. He was ambitious. He, he always lived to his means. He, he, he fell in love with his, uh, with his uh, was going to be his wife, and they married. And every child they had died within a month or so until eventually their, their fourth, their son, actually lived. And then his wife died, and then he was bankrupt. And, it's just, and he actually died as a pauper in a forgotten grave. But he painted this near the end of his life. And I've been studying this picture. This is not something culturally as you would look at this painting now and immediately your heart would warm to it. But the more you study it, you see a broken son being held by a loving father. And we don't know who the observers are. Maybe one of the observers is the is the son who never left the father, who got quite indignant about it all. But here you have the son, this broken, in rags, we're told, undergarments, coming back to Jesus, to the father. Where did that start? It started with one step. Herod was 10 minutes away. And as I think about our lives, I wonder where you are in this painting. Maybe you're just an observer, wishing that you had that relationship with God the father. Maybe you feel like the sun, but still in a long way away. Maybe you feel like you're the other way, that you're still drifting away from the Father. Even though you're hearing that you're continually being reminded of how much you're loved, you're just on that journey away. And as I studied this, the book that I'm reading actually looks at this painting and, and talks through it and talks through the scripture. It's, it's a beautiful book by Henry Nouwen and... and um, it really caused me to pause this week. I think, do I have that intimacy with the Father? Christians, when was the last time you spent 10 minutes with the Father? 
that 10 minute journey because our life is so busy but you spend 10 minutes just listening 10 minutes reading 10 minutes praying and maybe that 10 minutes turns to 15 minutes and 20 minutes or whatever it might be have you taken that journey recently for those of you who maybe you're just thinking through Christianity and you're wondering about this whole thing and this Jesus and I want to encourage you I wonder how how much of a small step you've taken towards God actually quiet yourself and considered and thought and maybe maybe your prayer is God it's been a long time it's been a long time but I want to start my journey back so when I look at Herod I see a legacy lost and I look at the prodigal and I see a legacy taken hold of one who recognizes that they're loved Herod was 10 minutes away that's it Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful, rich story. And Lord, I pray that at this Christmas time we'll be able to spend time looking and reading, maybe through fresh eyes. God, this amazing story. Jesus, you came as a baby in a mysterious way. That, Lord, you came to live life, feel what we feel and experience what we experience. And then, Lord, ultimately, that would lead you to the cross, your love for us. But, Lord, I'm very cognizant that we're all at different stages of our journey. Lord, I pray for those who maybe feel like they're drifting away. God, I pray that as they drift, they would hear your voice so acutely, just like Herod heard the news, that, Lord, they would hear the news that they are loved, that they're cared for, and that there is a Father waiting. Lord, for those who just feel like they're in that pig pen, God, that in some way we would come to our senses this morning and start that one step back towards you. That, Lord... I pray for an intimacy with you. That, God, we would no longer be observers, but, Lord, we would be experiencing what it's like to be held by a loving Father. Like, as we've heard, Lord, this joy that is available, the security and the identity and the peace and all those good things, forgiveness, that, Lord, as we make you ultimate, as we anchor into you, that all those other good things become better as we hold them in an open hand. God, help us this morning, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You know, when we come to this time of our service, we often sing a reflective 